Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. And Utah State University's Center for Women and Gender, providing a professional and social climate to enhance opportunities through learning, discovery, and engagement. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. We hope you'll join us uh, throughout the fall for our newest UPR original series called Utah Women 2020, which will explore the unique challenges and opportunities facing women in Utah today. We're going to explore gender parity, the Me Too movement, elections, and much more. And we begin that series today on Access Utah. Our guest is Nylon McBain, CEO of Better Days 2020. Better Days 2020 says that Utah helped lead the nation in advocating for women's rights. And we believe that by popularizing our history in creative and communal ways, we can challenge Utahns to live up to this great legacy of women's advocacy. We'll talk about that. Nylon McBain grew up in New York City, later attended Yale University, currently lives with her husband and three young daughters, and works as a brand strategist in Salt Lake City. She's founder and editor-in-chief of the Mormon Women Project, a digital library of interviews with LDS women from around the world. And Nyla Gumbain is author of Women at Church, Magnifying LDS Women's Local Impact and How to Be a 21st Century Pioneer Woman. And she joins us from KCBW Studios in Salt Lake City. Nyla McBain, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I was uh, doing a little bit of uh, research, not only professional life, but uh, personal life as well. I'm an opera buff, and so the name oh. Ariel Bybee means something to me. Um, oh, how exciting. <laughs> so that's your mother. That is my mother, yes. Uh, passed this year, I believe. She did. She passed away in March, yes, so, so just a few uh, months ago. Sorry for your loss there. Uh, so, so then you, uh, she, she had a fairly long career at the Met. She sang for 18 seasons at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City and actually over 460 performances, which is not near the Met's record of uh, most frequent performers, but certainly up there. So, yeah, she had a very distinguished career there. Uh, what was it like uh, growing up in that environment? Well, Your mom singing at the Met. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to talk about because it was just such an unusual and delightful childhood. I was an only child, and we my apartment was directly across the street from Lincoln Center, and so I would just go to work with her, and I would sit in the dressing room area of the Met, uh, making Cabbage Patch Kid clothing with the dressers. <laughs> I remember they were one of them was a skilled crochet artist and knitter, and she would help me make clothes for my dolls. And, you know, Luciana Povarotti would walk by and Domingo and Leontine Price. And I would and, and I remember the stage managers would get very nervous because sometimes my mom would even bring me past those massive metal doors to the actual backstage area and let me stand very quietly and silently in the wings um, while she went on stage. And so I actually sang in the Metropolitan Opera Children's Chorus when I got older. We, we were on stage once together. Uh, so it was just a magical part of my childhood. And, and I'm, I'm an opera lover because of it. Too. To this day. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating to me. Did, did you have, I promise this whole hour won't be opera, but I mean, it could be, but it won't. But um, um, did you have any interaction with Pavarotti or Domingo or? Um, not that I can remember specifically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know my, my mom did, but um, I ended up actually pursuing piano myself, and, and I, I, she called me her accompanist in residence. So <laughs> I, I grew up playing for her more in her, her solo recitals and um and uh, performances, so I, I, I got to know certainly some singers personally, but but not them. Mm. Uh, closest I've come is Joan Sutherland. I had an opportunity to do a phone interview with her, and I oh wonderful! Uh, I came wonderful. close to close to hyperventilating, but I, yes. I held it held it together. Well, we have some wonderful yeah. singers, as you probably know, that have come out of Utah recently. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, wonderful so, singers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I was watching a, a preview of your uh, TEDx Salt Lake City talk, oh. which is I think coming up, right? Yes, it is on September eighth at Kingsbury Hall. Okay, um, and you—that's uh, a good place to start this discussion. Um, y- your your point was in that brief video, and I assume you'll expand this in your your TEDx Salt Lake City talk that Utah at one time was on the leading edge of women's advocacy. 
Absolutely, we were. We were actually the first place where a woman cast a legal ballot in the United States, if you can believe it. 1870, February 14th, 1870, Sarah Young, a school teacher, cast the first female ballot in the country uh, at a building actually that still stands today. It's been moved from its original location, but it's the Council Hall building. It now sits across from the State Capitol building. And that was the that was the 50 years before the 19th Amendment was passed, granting women across the country the right to vote uh, in all elections. And so that that wasn't actually the only way in which Utah led the way. We also elected the first female state senator anywhere in the nation. Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon was elected in 1896 in the first election open to female candidates. And we have this illustrious history of Utah suffragists. Emmeline Wells, who was our, our state's leading suffragist, was such a good friend of Susan B. Anthony's that on her deathbed, Susan bequeathed her gold ring to Emmeline as a symbol of their 40-year friendship. And there's a dress in the Susan B. Anthony Museum right there in her bedroom of her home museum in Rochester, New York, that was given to her by the women of Utah, made from Utah silk, which they had raised and grown and made themselves. And Susan B. Anthony declared it her favorite item of clothing because it was made by free women. So these stories actually go on and on and on. We had um, women who traveled across the country to participate in suffrage conventions in the East. We had women who chained themselves to the White House gates under the Woodrow Wilson administration uh, to, to protest for women's right to vote. So this, is, this was an essential part of Utah's early history. And in fact, it was it was a principle that Utah's legislators built the state upon uh, from the time of that first vote in 1870 to the time of statehood in 1896. Uh, female suffrage was really a fraught issue uh, with the federal government as Utah lobbied and petitioned for statehood. But once statehood actually came in 1895, 1896, Utah's male legislators felt extremely strongly that suffrage needed to be included in the state constitution. And uh, they they really fought for it and lobbied for it. And the women traveled around the, the state gathering thousands of names for petitions to take to that uh, con- constitutional convention. And suffrage was included as part of the state constitution here in Utah. It was the third state to do so in the United States. Why do you think uh, this Utah was on the leading edge at that point? Well, as I'll explain in my TED talk, you know, I mean, the the, the reasons are are complicated, and the reasons why we've shifted uh, to the opposite end of the spectrum are complicated as well. But a couple of factors initially uh, that contributed to that fervor in the 19th century were that the pioneers from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were bringing with them a sort of appetite to participate in radical social experiments. And polygamy, of course, is the most well-known of those. Uh, and polygamy had a direct effect on the the t- decision to give women the right to vote. Um, East Coast publications and governments were thinking that if women in Utah voted, then they would vote out polygamy or they would vote for legislators who would uh, disband polygamy. And so it was a little bit of a dare, uh, and the Utah State Legislature responded. Uh, Three months after Wyoming's legislature gave their women the right to vote legislatively, Utah followed suit, uh, and then we had the first election in which a woman participated. So to be clear, that's what we're celebrating. We're not celebrating the legislative decision in which Wyoming was first. We are celebrating the first election in which a woman actually cast a vote. And the elections didn't go the way the East Coast establishment thought they would. Uh, and so there was a little bit of, I think, thumb, you know, thumbing their noses at, at the East Coast when um, the sort of predominantly Mormon women did not vote the way the East Coast um uh, media thought that they would, but it it did also reflect a deep seated value among the early pioneers here that uh, emancipation, woman's emancipation, was kind of a, a continuation of this religious revolution that they were bringing with them from the east and from Illinois, specifically from Nauvoo. So so there was there were it was a response to East Coast pressures. It was a response to polygamy. It was also a response to their deeply held religious beliefs in uh, equality and in a sort of social dynamism that uh, they they exercised in lots of different parts of their lives. The, uh, this is, uh, you know, it's it's not straightforward. It's complicated, as you say. The you know the East Coast, uh, those anti-polygamous forces, 
I think for them, they thought it was going to be clear cut. Give the women oh, they the absolutely vote, did. And, and you'll, you'll cast off this oppressive system. Absolutely. I mean, there's lots of rhetoric. Uh, you know, of course, the, the famous statement about the twin relics of barbarism, slavery and, and polygamy uh, that that uh, reveal the uh, the perception that polygamy was barbaric and oppressive. And in, in some cases, absolutely it was. It was uh, incredibly isolating for the community here. Uh, it was, it was, it, it, there was a steep social cost in practicing it as it was continually, um, you know, isolated from the rest of the country. In fact, within the female suffragist circles, Susan B. Anthony was actually uh, unusual in embracing the Mormon polygamist women and Utah women in general uh, within her suffragist circles because the larger suffragist party was, uh, and, and a couple of different factions of, of the national suffragist groups were very hesitant to embrace those Utah women. They were very puzzled by them. They had achieved something that these groups had already worked for decades to achieve and had not been able to achieve. And yet at the same time, they held them at arm's length because so many of the Utah suffragists were also polygamists, uh, and and of course, you know, as we're studying this issue, we have to we have to understand that polygamy, while it was heartbreaking and isolating uh, for many women, it also kind of spurred on this need to create a life for themselves outside that of wife and mother. Uh, if, Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, especially, you know, received four degrees before she was 25. Uh, she, you know, several of which were received at prestigious East Coast institutions. She was a doctor. She was the first female uh, physician at the Deseret Hospital here in Salt Lake, which was actually an all-female-led hospital. And uh, Emmeline Wells herself edited the Woman's Exponent newspaper for 36 years, which became the longest-running suffrage newspaper in the country, one of the longest uh, in the country. And so you see these examples of, of some of these women uh, really having some unusual doors open to them and some unusual motivations for really stretching themselves beyond what we would have assumed a sort of, you know, a isolated Western desert home would have allowed them to do. So this impulse was there, right? And uh, how unusual uh, or or representative, I guess, on either side of the the, the scale, were Martha Hughes Cannon and Emmeline B. Wells? In- well, that's one of the things that we really want to stress with our project, Better Days 2020, is that these women accomplish these things because of the support of their community, not in spite of it. I think today in Utah, um, we we look at at women who may be. Uh, doing things that go against the grain of traditional gender roles, and we think, oh, well, they're the exceptions, right? They, they've broken out because of um, some exceptional talent that they have or some exceptional family situation that they have. And one of the things that we love about this early history in Utah is that this community had had a sort of fervor in it that was uh, fostering a lot of women like this. Uh, and and you read some of the statements of the men from that time. For instance, um, Joseph F. Smith, who, of course, would later become a president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, lectured on the evils of paying a woman less than a man for doing the same job. He talked about the shackles that held women down and how some women are enthralled by these shackles and refuse to be released from them. And there's just this incredible rhetoric that sounds progressive even to us here today. But but the men were supportive of this. The men were behind this. Uh, at the time of statehood at the Constitutional Convention, Franklin Richards, who was a legislator, said that equal suffrage would prove to be the brightest and purest ray of Utah's glorious star, and it would beckon its sister states up to higher civilization. I mean, that this language was very... Um, just visionary, and it was it was representative of a sort of fervor that that defined that community at the time. This is uh, this is news to me. I guess this is why you're doing <laughs> yes. Better Days 2020, right? Yes. Uh, what were the? Um, I hadn't known that about Joseph F. Smith or or Franklin Richards. What were their motivations? Was this come out of the religion or what? Uh... What was the motivation, do you think? Well, Orson F. Whitney said that he did believe that Utah's efforts on behalf of women were 
the great leveler by which the Almighty was lifting up this fallen world. That's one of his statements. And so he, Orson F. Whitney, who, who, who was an apostle within the church and a legislator as well, definitely evoked uh, a sort of divine motivation to this. Uh, there was a lot of pride among the early uh, uh, LDS you know, Utahns, that they had always allowed women to participate by common consent in the government of the church. Of course, the idea of priesthood as we know it now was not nearly so gendered. Women at this time were giving healing blessings. Uh, you know, there there was a considerable more uh, uh, crossover in, in gender than than we would see now, at least at least relative to that time period, right? I mean, you're, we're talking about a time period when women did not own property, right? And 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 here in Utah they could, or it was very difficult for women to obtain a divorce. And actually, here in Utah it was easier than in most places. So we're it, we're talking about relative emancipation uh, as it existed in 19th century America. But uh, I do think that there there were. From the language that we've seen, there was this sense that this was a continuation of their religious revolution that had a divine imprint to it. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to shift to today. And uh, and uh, you say that um, women's advocacy happened in the 19th century because of supportive community, not in spite of it. That's one of your key messages, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. I want to do that through line to uh, to today. And um, one of the things you say at Better Days 2020 is that uh, by popularizing our history in creative and communal ways, we can challenge Utahns to live up to this great legacy of women's advocacy. So uh, Better Days 2020 uh, is the place to, uh, to go, betterdays2020.com. And uh, our project, Utah Women 2020, we'll have that up on our website, upr.org. Before we go to break, um, we mentioned the TEDx uh, Salt Lake City Talk Nyland McBain will be giving. That's September 8th, you say? Yes. And uh, preceding that, um, let's see, September 7th is Party Like It's 1870. Yes. The night before, we're having a large public festival at Heritage Park. This is the place, Heritage Park. And uh, we will be celebrating Utah women past and present. And we would love to invite the community to join us. Uh, Information is on our site, betterdays2020.org. And we will be featuring singer Brooke White. We will have some of the cast members from Studio C. And we will be partnering with other local organizations here in Utah that are doing exceptional work on behalf of women. We at Better Days 2020 see history as a catalyst for uh, challenging our perceptions and our identity. But there are other groups already in existence here in the state that are targeting specific areas such as the YWCA, uh, braid workshops, uh, the women, Utah Women in Leadership Projects, et cetera. And so we're partnering with them at this event. So let's uh, take a break. Our guest is Nyland McVeigh. She joins us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to the good folks there. And uh, we'll uh, open the phone lines and email. I would love to get to your thoughts on the subject for today. UPRaccess at gmail.com is the email. UPRaccess at gmail.com or 800-826-1495, the phone number. More following this break. Hey, I'm Tom Power. If you recognize John Cho, it's probably from the Star Trek movie, like the more recent ones, or Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. I guess depending on what kind of person you are. John's new film is called Searching, and it's told through Facebook, TV news, and texts. That's coming up on Q for PRI Public Radio International. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll dance the tango in its many forms, from the traditional bandoneon of Argentina to the pulsing electronica of the new tango of Finland and Norway. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Tango Around the World, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are premiering our newest UPR original series today. It's called Utah Women 2020. We're going to explore the unique challenges and opportunities facing women in Utah today, and including exploring gender parity, the Me Too movement, elections, and much more. That'll be uh, happening now through uh, into December, and we'll have information up on our website, upr.org. We're talking today with Nylon McBain, CEO of Better Days 2020. Better Days 2020 says that Utah helped lead the nation in advocating for women's rights. We've talked about that in the first segment today. And they go on to say, we believe that by popularizing our history in creative and communal ways, we can challenge Utahns to live up to this great legacy of women's advocacy. Uh, so, uh, and Nyland McBain joins us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to them. Nyland McBain, uh, maybe that the, the second part of that then, you'd say we were on the leading edge then, 19th century, on the trailing edge in many ways now. How so? Well, based on statistical information that has been published in the national media and actually last week from a University of Chicago uh, research project, we Utah as a state trails in many different factors, including workplace environment, health, education levels, and political engagement. Ironically, we actually have one of the lowest rates of female voter turnout in the nation today. Uh, and our wage gap puts us at the bottom or near the bottom of the nation, meaning that our women today are making the least amount per dollar uh, compared to a man for doing the same job. And so, um, so yeah, I, I mean, my, our thesis is that we've we've swung from the leading edge to the trailing edge. And uh, there was, I, I don't know if it escaped anybody last week, there was a the study out of the University of Chicago that placed Utah second to last in the nation for the most sexist state in the nation, trailed only by Arkansas. And of course, those of us who live here uh, understand some of the dynamics that contribute to those external observations. And some of us, I know, may you know have have very reasonable explanations for why these things are. And some may even argue that these are not entirely bad things. We've heard all of that, um, and we certainly uh, you know respect those those points of view and understand that Utah is a quirky and wonderful place. I moved here nine years ago from New York City, and I've I've loved it here. Uh, but at the same time, there's tremendous amount of work that can be done here to help make sure that the women here feel confident and prepared to pursue meaningful and purposeful work in eras of their lives that either demand it or are interesting and open to it, uh, that they in which they want to do that. Um, and so, so our job at Better Days 2020 is to use this history as a catalyst for conversation. We believe that if our children are being raised in their schools and if we're talking about this history in our homes, then our women and our men here will have examples of more communal support for women's advancement that currently don't exist here. And that's one reason that we're starting with education. We are launching, we have piloted this past semester and we're launching now this fall, an educational curriculum for fourth and seventh grade Utah studies programs in our elementary schools that talk about this history and introduce our students to dozens um, if hopefully, hopefully, eventually hundreds of these uh, women and men who were our, our early women's advocates here in the state. And the idea is to give them uh, models and to give them a, a different par- paradigm for what it means to be a woman in Utah. We have a caller, a caller from, uh, I believe, Springdale. Uh, go, yes. go, go ahead. Oh, hi. Um, yes, thank you so much. You're so well-spoken. And um, I did go to BYU when your mother was there. And, delightful. Um, it was a wonderful time, but I will say that my freshman year in 1965, I was told that I couldn't uh, major in a certain subject because I was to be a housewife. <laughs> and so they always directed me to the family direction, and I wanted to go in other directions. But And then again, um, there was divorce. My uh, great-great-grandfather was a polygamist in Ephraim, Utah, and he had five wives. And um, one of his wives did divorce him way back in 1861. So I do notice in reading the histories and everything um, how important it was for women. They were very strong 
Um, I wrote a novel called Waltz with the Lady for Pocketbooks years ago, and I did a lot of research during that time. Um, it was around the 80s, and I was in Wyoming, Women Got the Vote the, in 1869 the first time in any of the states. And when Wyoming went to come into statehood um, in the 1896, I believe, they weren't going to let them in because women had the vote. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so they telegraphed back to Wyoming and said, we aren't going to come in unless we can come in with our women. Yes. <laughs> and the women uh, telegraphed back and said, well, we trust that you'll give us the vote when you come back, and that's exactly what they did. Yes. And so, you know, there are many great stories about that period of, of time. And um, anyway, so I just, you know, wanted to say how great this sounds and, and uh, with your enthusiasm and everything, and I do wonder... Do you, you said there are some reasons, but why did Utah sort of revert after all that, you know, yes. progressiveness that's a, that's, then? That's the big question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Caller, thank you so much. Thank Appreciate you. that. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah, I, I, that, is, that is the question, and I, I know that uh, there are some... Uh, scholars, particularly Martha Bradley at the University of Utah, who have have written about this. Uh, you know, I think anybody who's of a certain age will probably kind of remember an ethos that existed in Utah in the middle of the 20th century that was very different from what we're describing now, right? Of course, specifically the ERA was a source of great tension, um, and and I think you know one reason of, is that the a women's rights movement of the 20th century took on a very different political flavor than it had in the 19th century. And the it became heavily politicized around abortion and birth control and you know, sort of the women's lib stereotype of the 70s. And of course, at that same time, while that was going on in the larger American society, the LDS church here in Utah was, was becoming more and more correlated, more and more conservative, more and more sort of... Um, traditional in its approach. It didn't have that sort of uh, rogue, you know, appetite that it did in the 19th century when the pioneers had originally arrived here. And uh, and so it re- those, those two institutions, the sort of larger American culture and then the church here in Utah really diverged, I mean, dramatically in the middle of the 20th century. And so stories of those like the ones I told from Emmeline Wells, where you know she was this um, progressive uh, political activist, and you know was uh, writing this these hundreds of editorials for this newspaper, the Woman's Exponent, advocating for dramatic women's emancipation. Those narratives became less and less convenient for the LDS Church, right? And so they kind of stopped being told. It's been interesting. We we've encountered. Uh, certainly older people who remember their grandparents telling them and having it be a source of great pride that Utah or they themselves or that the people they knew were at this leading edge of women's advocacy here in Utah in the 19th century. And I just think as the generations have died out and as people instead remember the mid-century ERA battles, you know, those, those, those stories just have gotten lost. And with them, that sort of pride and ethos that came uh, in earlier generations, so so that's certainly you know a, a major reason. Um, you know, I, I the the caller um, indicated certainly uh, that my my mom was unusual, and one of the reasons that I've been so inspired to, to sort of live the life I have is that my mom went, was at BYU in the 1960s in that environment that our caller described. And she just had a very different personality and kind of went off and did her own thing and was just kind of like, well, you know, I'm going to do what's right for me. But we just haven't had a lot of examples of people like that through the 20th century. And so that that ethos of kind of the 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 woman as her own decision maker uh, and crafter of her own life outside of wife and motherhood just hasn't had those role models uh, from the 20th century. I want to uh, maybe take a, a slight side trip there. Um, it, you um, reading in the, uh, the beginning uh, pages of uh, of your your book, uh, Women at Church. 
you talk about the uh, the genesis of the Mormon Women Project and the, the, what you just said. Your your mother was uh, kind of unusual. Uh, mm-hmm. You you had maybe a little bit of unusual upbringing. You had role models, and then it dawned on you at some point that maybe other women didn't have those same role models. Yes, I was raised as an only child in New York City uh, in the 1980s and 90s. I actually went to an all-girls school uh, there in New York for 12 years, so I was only educated with girls. And um, and yet I, I was an active member of the church, and so I had some interesting... Um, you know, influences uh, at my school. It was a highly feminist community. I was um, trained and encouraged to maximize my potential as a a public contributor. Uh, At church, of course, I was getting more traditional family messages, but they were very much tempered because of our environment of being in New York. I mean, my mom was a professional. We, most of our friends were, you know, it just there were some large families, but not not many. And and um, I loved my my church experience growing up, and I loved the idea that one day I would um, raise a family in in the church, and that's what I've been able to do. Especially since my mother wasn't able to have more children, and my parents were divorced. So I'm grateful for all of those influences, but. The most important thing it taught me is that they're not mutually exclusive. You can be both um, a religious person, a person of any faith, uh, a person who's dedicated to family, even without a faith, a person who's dedicated to raising your children as um, intimately and as hands-on as you want to be. And uh, that's not mutually exclusive with making choices for yourself and crafting an identity for yourself in the public sphere. And the voices of women today in the public sphere are vitally needed. Decisions change when women are involved in them. And as I think you'll probably talk about more in later in this, this series on your program, uh, we are seeing the effects of women in the public sphere all over the place. Um, we are seeing decisions change. We're seeing different priorities come to the top because women are now uh, really at a critical mass in, in decision-making bodies. And that is only a good thing. And women's lives are long now. They're longer than they have been in the past. The t- period of child rearing is uh, small compared to the life of a woman. And technology also allows us to do things with our public uh, engagement that has never been possible before with the, in the history of the world. And these things have to be taken into consideration so that we stop raising women to think that um, that they are not welcome in the public sphere and in the public community, regardless of their religion, regardless of their upbringing or their political conviction. It's just not needed anymore, and it's not healthy anymore uh, for our girls to be raised that way. I want to follow up with that. You, um, I think we are seeing this um, more and more women in the public sphere, and uh, things do change. Uh, maybe enumerate that. How, how, in what way um, do you think the the things change because there are more women's voices in the public sphere? Well, I, I think. Um I, I, well, I think the Me Too movement is a good example of that, right? We, we've, we've finally reached a tipping point where women feel that they are comfortable speaking out about uh, things that they felt would uh, jeopardize them or their careers in the past, right? So uh, sexual assault, sexual relations are on the on the table now in in the sense that they in a way that they haven't been before by empowering um, uh, women not. You know, by empowering women to to have the leading role in that conversation, of course, in government too. You, we, we're seeing right now a record number of women running for political office. Uh, legislation in this country is often sort of considered to be the 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 blunt hammer by which we address women's issues. Uh, and certainly, when the women when the suffragists of our of our early nation uh, addressed women's voting power, they they were actually hoping to encompass a, a large number of of issues. Uh, vote The vote was just a way to get to issues around child labor and job safety and wage gap issues and, um, and, and some of these larger uh, legislative issues that were affecting women. And uh, today, we have the vote, but now we need to get those women into our legislative bodies so that they are actually 
passing legislation, importantly, but also changing culture and changing perceptions and attitudes so that we don't have issues around, um, you know, Family Leave Acts, which, of course, the United States is one of the only countries not to have paid uh, paid leave for parents from mandatory paid leave for parents uh, in corporate environments. And and those kinds of things just have to be changed and they have to be done legislatively as well as culturally and socially. So getting some of these women in office, they'll, they'll be bringing some higher, pri- some different priorities to our legislative sessions. If you just joined us, we are talking with Nylon McBain. She is CEO of Better Days 2020. They have a bunch of uh, upcoming uh, events. Um, there's a uh, TEDx Salt Lake City talk by Nylon McBain. That's on September 8th. And uh, sounds like a good time if you show up to party like it's 1870. That's uh, being put on by Better Days 2020. And that's happening on September 7th. Uh, we do have, before we go to break, we do have another caller. Uh, Georgia in Cedar City joins us. Welcome to the program. Uh, Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Years ago in the late 1970s, I was involved in the Utah uh, events for the National Women's Year. And uh, I'm an an active member of the church, but that was one of my worst experiences because women got so polarized we wouldn't even talk to each other. So I guess I'm not as optimistic as our guest about really getting women to support women in the public place. Would you comment on your perspectives on that? And how do we get us to talk to each other so that even if someone wants to do something different than maybe what you think women ought to do, you're willing to give people space to create their own lives? That is a great question. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. Thanks, uh, can Georgia. I go ahead and answer that, Tom? Yeah, yeah go Just, ahead. Thank you, Georgia. appreciate that. I, um, I, I, think that, I think that you bring up an absolutely essential uh, experience that is in many Utah Utahns' memories, and isn't it wonderful that we have young generations that come up so naively without that communal lived memory to think optimistically that we can uh, do things differently? But I, I, I'm very much aware of that that history, and I will say that having worked in women's advocacy for ten years here in Utah, I am no stranger to that feeling of diamond cutting diamond, which is how Emmeline Wells put it. This, these precious Precious women, um, strong, precious women um, cutting each other down. And I, I do draw comfort from the fact that Emmeline herself experienced this and had, had this term for it, diamond cutting diamond. This was something that she experienced herself uh, here in Utah among some of the various factions of suffragists that existed here in Utah. But um, mostly in the way that she uh, and other Utah suffragists interacted with the national uh, coalition of suffragists, how, how, as I described before, how Emmeline and some of her sisters were not included in those meetings, and, and they would actually be in, uh, invited to step down from the dais at some of the conventions, even though Emmeline was um, a member of, of the administration in some of these conventions, because, you know, they, as they, they weren't welcomed. Uh, and and there was, there's a wonderful story of Susan B. Anthony actually inviting Emmeline back up to the dais and putting her arm around her and saying, you know, is she not one of our sisters? And I, I mean, I don't have, I don't have a, a, a full explanation or a cure for, for the dynamic that you're describing. Just to say that it does exist. Uh, I think that... Um, uh, you know, in my in in my own experience, I think that there's been some pushback from women to suggestions I've made and and over the years because it's a little bit of an indictment uh, when we say that women, you know, should be for their own health and the health of their community pushing outside of the boundaries that they're already comfortable with, or this power. Uh, influence the influence and power that they already have established for themselves. When we challenge them to go beyond that, that's a bit of an indictment to what they've already established for themselves and where they feel comfortable and where they feel like they've established their power and influence already. And I understand that that can be a hard message for some. Um, I also think that there have been fewer opportunities for women to be in leadership positions and in the public sphere. And so we're still in that kind of mindset that there's only room for one woman at the top. You know, we see that in corporate uh, environments uh, frequently still even today uh, where women will feel like, you know, they worked so hard to get there that there might not be room to bring their their sisters along uh, into those those public spheres. So I, I, 
you know, I, I know that there's there's work being done to to research those dynamics of women and why we do that to each other. Uh, in the meantime, all I can say is I've I've experienced it. It's terribly sad, um, and I, I have some pet theories, private theories for for why that may be may happen. Okay, uh, private theories. So okay, we'll leave them private. Well, I mean, uh, I've just I've just you know given given Cliff's Nose version of a couple. Oh, of them, oh I but, see, I see. Okay, yes. oh, sounds good. Okay. They're not. They're not. They're, I don't. I haven't. I can't quote any research that supports them academically. Is what oh, I, I mean. I see. I see what you mean. Yes. If you just joined us, we're talking with Nylon McBain. Uh, she is CEO of Better Days Twenty Twenty. And uh, they say that Utah helped lead the nation in advocating for women's rights. And we believe that by popularizing our history in creative and communal ways, we can challenge Utahns to live up to this great legacy of women's advocacy. And this episode of Access Utah is the first uh, program in our newest UPR original series called Utah Women 2020, which will explore the unique challenges and opportunities facing women in Utah today. It'll run uh, now into December. You can find out information, uh, you'll be able to find out information on our website, upr.org. More information on Better Days 2020, uh, look that up, betterdays2020.com. Nylon McBain joins us from the studios at KCPW, and we'll have more following this break. School employees in Texas who want to carry guns in the classroom go through intense training to become school marshals. There are lots of hard discussions. We're nurturers. And to think about having to make that decision in one of those moments is extremely difficult. I'm Elsa Chang, training educators to make tough calls and potentially make schools safer. Monday afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us this afternoon at 3 here on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music. From ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah, tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We have reached our last segment with Nylon McBain. She's CEO of... Um, Better Days 2020, Better Days 2020, and this episode of Access Utah is our kickoff program in our new series, which will run into December. It's called Utah Women 2020. You'll be able to find out more information on that on our website, upr.org. Uh, now that McBain, um, I was struck by this. I'll just read a few sentences from this paragraph from the beginning of uh, Women at Church, one of Fanon McBain's books. Um, if we position the beginning of women's improved uh, representation in the world to Mary Wollstonecraft's 1792 treatise of Vindication of the Rights of Women, which may be considered generous since most strides really didn't take root well into the 19th century, a mere 3.7% of the world's recorded 6,000-year history has been concerned with the development of women's full potential. And uh, then you go on to, to give a few examples. Uh, if we further magnify the changes the past 50 years alone, uh, that narrows it down even further. For example, and this struck me, in 1962, you say, in the United States, it was legal for a man to kill his wife if he discovered her cheating on him. And you go on to give some other examples. Um, this highlights the importance of history, knowledge of history. Absolutely. Yes, we are we are putting our faith in history at Better Days 2020 to to change perceptions and uh, identities in the future, because th this is a very new conversation for us as humans. And we need to be particularly aware of what we came from, what we rose from. We need to have an understanding of the people and the events that were important in that fight. Because if we don't know these stories, we are at risk of backsliding. Without vigilance and telling their stories, you know, societies such as ours, whether you're talking about Utah or the United States or the world in general, are at risk of losing what previous generations fought for. And that's one of the reasons I think we've seen that in Utah. And that's one of the reasons we feel strongly about bringing some of these uh, this history back into the public sphere. If, if I can talk for just a second about how we're popularizing yes. this history. Yeah. May, I, may I do that for a minute? You bet. Um, 
my background is in, is in marketing. And while lots of academics, not lots, but some academics have done great work on this history in PhD theses and in classrooms, this, as you mentioned early on, this, this history really isn't known generally uh, among Utahns. And so we're doing, uh, through education, legislation, and art, we're making sure that these stories and these names and these models are really uh, integrated into the um home life of, of Utah. And so I mentioned earlier our educational curriculum. That's at Utah Women's History, uh, sorry, utahwomenvote.com. Uh, and that is a fourth and seventh grade educational curriculum for classrooms that are doing Utah studies. Along with that, we've commissioned an illustrator, Brooke Smart, a local uh, Utah illustrator, to illustrate uh, 50 Utah women's advocates um, from uh, the the earliest days of our state up until today, the the criteria is that these women and men must have passed away. So we have everybody from uh, Fanny Brooks, who was one of the first Jewish members of our community here in Utah, a keen businesswoman. Uh, we have Emma McVicker, who uh, started the Neighborhood House here in in Salt Lake. So some of these women's uh, business um, and medical and, and industry uh, effects are still. Um, part of our communities today. Of course, we have some of the women that I've already mentioned, Dr. Marthys Cannon, Emmeline Wells. And so we're hoping that through uh, trading cards that are going to be distributed by Gibbs Smith to 3,000 classrooms this fall, students will be able to be familiar with these names. We also were a uh, force behind the Martha Hughes Cannon statue that was part of this last legislative session. A statue of Dr. Cannon uh, will be placed in the U.S. Capitol building in 2020 as we're celebrating the centennial of the 19th Amendment to remind Utah and the state that we were the first place to elect a female state senator. We actually have a first vote license plate that's going to be at DMV's in October, and so we encourage people to look for that. That, of course, is, you know, there's, we, we're always sitting behind cars on the road, so that's a great way to get that message out and to help establish that pride of place here uh, among Utahns. And we have monthly events as well, uh, which you mentioned uh, September 7th is one of our bigger ones, but we have monthly educational events as well, uh, just making sure that we're getting the public educated about this history and talking about what it means for us as Utahns today. So. The rest of our projects are on our website. We have a, a long list of them, and we're hoping that we're really able to sort of penetrate the conversation here in Utah over the next couple of years. Yeah, it sounds like some some great things are going to be happening a lot. So, yeah, go to Better Days 2020 to, uh, to find out a lot more about those. And, of course, the TEDx Salt Lake City uh, talk, Nyla McBain, on September 8th. Yes. Be, uh, be coming up. Uh, I want to read this uh, email. It's interesting. This is from Steve. He says, um, um, when he was a teenager and our family was living in Connecticut, my son, now in his mid-30s, dated a young woman whose family was from Salt Lake City, but was living at the time in New Canaan, Connecticut. This young woman was an equestrian of some prominence. Her family supported her and invested in her and her sport, and she became a contender for a slot on the American Olympic team. At the age of 18, this young woman moved back to Utah, enrolled at BYU, and in surprisingly short order was married with children and had given up her Olympic aspirations entirely. Rightly or wrongly, my East Coast family thought this a peculiar course for her life to take. It was hard for us to comprehend, given all that she and her family had invested in becoming a nationally ranked equestrian. Her uh, decision to set it all aside so completely, it seemed to us very Utah and not at all Connecticut. That's uh, Steve. What do you think? <laughs> Well, I've lived in both of those worlds, right? Mm -hmm. um, growing up in New York, going to my my L girls school, uh, I know exactly uh, what the perception would be. And also, having lived here in Utah and having been married early myself, I, I know um, the other side of that as well. I, I, um, I mean, I have I have a lot of strong feelings about that. I, I I do think that that's a prime example of how we teach our girls that they can be one thing or the other. They can't be both and they can't expect uh, a husband, for instance, to support, um, you know, a, a, a personal ambition like that. It, it doesn't ring um, uh, as, as something that should be approved or something that's worthy of of a, a, a marital compromise. Uh, that's and that's, you know, assuming that she is going to be looking to get married young in the first place. Um, so I, I 
I'm struggling a little bit here because I think, you know, we, we're really focused on Better Days 2020 and this history being focused on all Utahns. But I do know that uh, in the example that you just gave, for instance, this person is coming back to BYU. This is probably has a lot of um, LDS church overtones and cultural overtones from from that. And so I guess I'll just speak as a, as a member of the church for a moment. Um, you know, I, I, I have seen throughout my, my life examples of that girl. Um, and I have also seen, I'm old enough now to be seeing some of the repercussions that come from focusing very early uh, and very completely on somebody else and, and giving up some of those dreams of yourself. And it, it's, it's desperately worrisome to me because I'm starting to see people of my own generation realize that they, women of my own generation realize that they never had a chance to craft that identity for themselves. They never had a chance to craft that, that identity that said, I'm both a wife and a mother, maybe, and something else. Um, and something that I've chosen for myself and something that magnifies my own skills and talents. And I just think that that's incredibly dangerous for us as a people. And I've seen the backlash of that in my own friends and my my own life as women now, and I'm, you know, mid 40s, as women now are saying, wow, what have I done for the last 20 years? And and, and they're re- responding dramatically, of course, some by, with divorce, some by uh, separating themselves from this this um, family life that they feel that has been constricting and limiting to them, uh, and it's and it's just something that I feel like we can avoid uh, and that we're not addressing full on. Uh, you know, we are still teaching our 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 girls uh, in church specifically that um, that that uh, achieving a wife and motherhood is kind of their ultimate. Um, achievement. And we are not adding to that conversation, the longevity of life, the other pursuits that they might want to cultivate, the importance of not just getting an education, but then doing something with that. I've heard that so many times as I've interviewed women uh, over the years that that they feel they felt they felt approval in pursuing educations, uh, but then they never felt approbation in actually doing something with it. Here in Utah, we have the highest rate of women in administrative jobs and retail jobs and reception jobs. So this means that our women are not pursuing long-term visionary careers. They're pursuing jobs that allow them, and perhaps for the time of their lives, rightly so, to be flexible, to be home with their families, to be the primary parent for their children. But at some point, uh, I think we should need to encourage our women to adopt a more... um, uh, um, a, a more rigorous approach to a visionary path for themselves that can be done in complement with a supportive husband, a supportive family, many of whom today are eager to support their wives and mothers and sisters and daughters in crafting identities uh, and public personas for themselves outside of their homes. And we need to be talking about that just as much as we are talking about women becoming wives and mothers. And we're not doing that yet. And I just fear that it's going to continue to create a generation of girls and boys in our church who don't feel like there's a place for them in the church institution and that it's not relevant to their lives. We will have to leave it there. We're out of time, but uh, we uh, want to mention here at the end uh, many activities uh, we coming up. Better Days 2020, you can find out more at their website, betterdays2020.com. Uh, the uh, big event, uh, Party Like It's 1870, happens on September 7th, uh, September 8th, TEDx Salt Lake City Talk by Nyland McBain. They'll have uh, those uh, trading cards, illustrations by Brooke Smart, be renaming streets. There will be school curriculum. Uh, first to vote license plate uh, and many other activities. Better Days 2020 is the place to go. Nylon McBain is their CEO. And uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And our thanks to the good folks at KCBW. That's where Nylon McBain has joined us from. And this is the kickoff for our UPR original series, Utah Women 2020. You'll be able to find out more about that on our website, upr.org. And thanks for listening today.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University's Center for Women and Gender, providing a professional and social climate to enhance opportunities through learning, discovery, and engagement. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. And the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.